Hi, it's G3, and I am recording this episode of Green Marbles on Wednesday, December 13th at 4.30 p.m., which is after the Fed's December meeting and press conference. And with me to break those things down for you is the one and only Lundy Wright, Weiss's Bond expert. Lundy will also offer up his latest take on where things stand in the fight against inflation and how the Fed meeting today impacts that effort. So if you could, stick around for important disclosures at the end of the pod and join us for Lundy Wright on the Fed. And with that, welcome. Okay, we are recording. Lundy, happy to have you back, I believe, for the last time in 2023. It's been a fun year talking with you. Likewise, it has been an exciting year, hasn't it? It's been an exciting year, and the Fed threw quite a party today, I would say, at their meeting. Oh, they're the most popular guys on the block. They are the most popular folks on the block. I would absolutely agree with that. You know, it's interesting, and reflecting on a couple of our previous discussions where we get together and chat after the Fed meeting, the pattern that we have fallen into was hawkish statement or firm statement, let's say, but then Powell gives it all back in a dovish press conference. This time around, though, it feels to me like the statement was dovish and then the press conference was dovish. Is that your assessment as well? Absolutely. You can't find a hawkish sliver in there to grab onto. And even some of the boilerplate lines that have been repeated in the past, like, we'll still tighten if we need to. It was so hollow when he uttered them that nobody believes it. And it's funny how people pour over every word and try to infer meaning from that, but sort of the way in which people have been conditioned to think about these things. The Fed inserted the word any into the statement in determining the extent of, and then they put in any additional policy firming that may be appropriate to return inflation at 2%. What is your sense of the meaning of the inclusion of the word any? Yeah, I think originally people were in the statement looking for any nuances that they could grab onto to say that the rally that we've had leading into the Fed meeting made sense. And it was something that should not be faded. And so that any word in the statement was something that everyone said, this is one of those nuances where they're starting to soften their meaning and soften their message. So that originally got a lot of attention. But then as the day wore on and in the press conference, he spoke and answered questions. The word any was way in the rearview mirror because he said a lot more dovish stuff than that. And there was literally zero pushback to any thought of tightening again, much less rates not being reasonable given where they are now priced. And one of the questions that came out was a question of what do you think about this given where we are on market pricing? And his answer was so dovish. And he later then said, question of when to begin dialing back this restrictive tightening comes into view. A week ago or two weeks ago or both when he spoke last, they weren't even discussing it, according to him. Suddenly, it's now coming into view. And everyone's like, oh, my gosh, here they are. We had priced in 125 basis points of easing for 2024. And now they're being so dovish that, oh, let's go to 115. (laughs) And sure enough, we did. And, you know, the dots came out. 
people thought they would be lowered by 50 basis points. It was 75. Let me just hit stop on you there. We all hear about the dots and then sometimes you hear you're not supposed to pay attention to them, but then they keep on being referenced and the like, just to make sure that everybody understands. Can you explain to us, in your view, the significance of the dot plot and what happened today that may have been notable for some? Sure. Each Fed member forecasts out where they expect the Fed funds rate to be at different points in time in the future, the end of 24 or the end of 23, the end of 24, 25, 26, and then a long run. They then take those dots and they plot them and they look to see how clustered they are. And then we look for changes in those clusters and in those dots. While Taken together, we look at them and say this is an indication of the guidance of what the Fed in its entirety expect to happen. Not one of those dots is actually a determinant in itself. Not one of them has the authority, other than Powell's, to be interpreted as this is the path we're going to take. But in its entirety, the investor base looks at it and says, this is what it represents. Now, Frequently, these dots are way wrong. But when we look back in time at what it was looking backwards, but now that's the best we have as guidance. So it lays out a potential path for each member of the, I think it's 19 dots, but for each member that puts in their dot plot, we look at the aggregate path and think, or the median path, and then think, well, that's a reasonable thought. And when then pushed in the press conference, Powell to say, is this a reasonable thought? He almost always says the same thing, saying this is just an aggregation of individuals' predictions, and it's not a path that the FOMC in its entirety is predicting. He didn't push back anything today. So here we have a more dovish path, and in some ways that their dovish path caught up with what the markets were already pricing in, but it was still not what the markets were expecting. So now the Fed, in a way, is caught up with markets expectations, which makes the markets say, whoa, if it's the Fed who's always trailing on this, if they're now seeing it our way, we probably should see it even more dovishly. And <laughs> it just was a green light for everyone to buy everything. Like the dog who catches the ambulance, right? You're saying that oh, the markets caught essentially <laughs> caught, I think that's the metaphor, caught the ambulance today. Well, all right. Before we move on and talk about implications of today's Fed meeting and all that, let me just ask you, anything else either in terms of the statement or in terms of the presser that you took note of other than Powell didn't push back on anything and essentially agreed with the overall sentiment of the markets that the next move is probably cutting? Anything else that you took note of today from either the statement or the presser? I would say there was nothing that stood out to sort of grab onto to argue for why we should fade the move that happened today or why it was misinterpreted. I don't think there was any misinterpretation at all. The two, you know, rallied 30 basis points. I would say if anything was somewhat missed in it is what the curve will do. The markets have been trying to be in curve steepeners all of 2023. And there's been a lot of pain associated with that because they start to work and then you get ripped against you and it starts to work and then it gets crushed against you. There's recently during the rally, there was a lot of flattening that occurred as well. And the pain trades that 
meaning the people who are in specific trades like steepeners where the short maturity yields go down faster than the long maturity yields do. When that was happening, what was going on recently and throughout the year was the long and the 30-year yields were going down faster. And that was in part, large part, to the Fed coming out and saying, we aren't even talking about easing. So you have two-year notes stuck at a higher yield than a bond or a 10-year note because you're taking the Fed at their word that they're not going to ease. And in fact, they're going to leave rates higher for longer, which is what they kept saying. And today, all of those types of higher for longer, we're not even talking about easing. That's not even on the table. We haven't even started. They all went out the window. So suddenly, all the risk in the market is no longer really in the front end. If there's risk in the market, it's in the back end. Because this is basically the Fed saying, we're not a target yet on inflation, but we're ready to ease. And he talked about his dual mandates. There's tidbits in there that you could push back on everything I'm saying, but they're tidbits and they were completely ignored. And he was asked pointed questions. Should we ignore this stuff? He didn't argue. He didn't say, yeah, ignore what I just said, but he, he didn't argue. So you right. should have a real pressure now for the curve to start to steepen. If you think inflation still is going to be sticky or still, you know, at the core level is going to be troublesome. And there's reasonable arguments why it would be. Well, it's not going to go away now that they're starting to ease. It's not going to go away on its own, or it's not under pressure from the Federal Reserve to kill it. They are allowing it to find its own footing and or possibly thrive. And so when that happens, now the long dated assets, the long dated cash flows have to survive under the risk that they're not fighting inflation anymore. And if that's the case and inflation's not dead, there is more risk in a long dated asset than there was. So if you're a commercial banker or a mortgage originator, you're probably pretty happy about that, right? Absolutely. Uh, honestly, like when I said, he's prom king for the day. I mean, <laughs> there is literally no one who is frustrated with him today. He's making housing more affordable today. He's letting investors who were long win. Businesses are going to be able to borrow at lower rates. Politicians are likely to be able to not have to fight back against the how they're being strangled by higher rates. The Treasury is going to be able to issue at lower rates. And that's good for the country because higher rates were hurting their ability to fund themselves as they wished. So all those things, like virtually everything except for the saver. The saver is he's not going to be saving at five and a half percent T-bills in a year. He's going to be saving at maybe four percent, maybe three. And we don't know where it goes to yet, but that is where the front end should rally. And the bond that's already at 415, 420, the bond, I don't know why it should move. While some people will extend out the curve and they might buy at the bond level, it's one of those things that it's probably better to extend out the curve and go into the five-year note to 10-year note. At the same time, these improved borrowing metrics that I'm just going through, certainly good for stocks, for companies. You know, he did everything but promise everyone no homework and uh, free ice cream in the cafeteria. Well, on that note, I'm reluctant to say that I want to put this meeting into a broader context because that is kind of a, a no-no word now. But I nevertheless want to ask you, within 
the context of the recent commentary by Waller, the recent CPI, which came out maybe a little bit hotter than expected, and this overall sense that while we have made progress towards reducing inflation, we are not at 2%. What is the unintended consequence of Chairman Powell taking his foot off of the brake, so to speak, and essentially delivering the most dovish press conference and meeting when, in fact, the job is not fully done on inflation? The whole world just got a boost in terms of growth. And here the Fed is with the economy at full employment, 3.7 unemployment rate, with core inflation CPI year over year at 4%, with the stock market at all-time highs, and they're starting to ease. I was pushing back for a while on when, as we were marching along this path, where was the urgency to get this done? What do they want stocks higher? They want housing prices higher. They want the unemployment market to be tighter. Where is it? Or is there forecast that things are about to weaken quickly? And because of that forecast, because of what they believe they see, they're taking this action. Now, granted, and I've said this before, this is a Fed who has been 0 for three years on forecasts. They've completely missed on inflation. You know, last year, everybody will be enduring pain with layoffs. They've missed on recession. There's been none of the above. Now, maybe there is all of the above in the future, but they've missed so badly. And I would say that the imbalances that were created during COVID, the economic imbalances, are we're still suffering from them to this day. They didn't just go away, but there's a belief that inflation has. And that's partially why they're trying to bring it down. I also think there's a real political pressure afoot in all of this because there's just a lot of people who are benefited by having lower rates. And this gets back to when Janet Yellen changed the mix of borrowing to the front end. Oh, that seems like a real good forecast on her part when that happened a month ago. So she changed the mix to being shorter, to borrowing more in bills. And here now the Fed is getting ready to ease. And so there's a lot of things that I guarantee you, you're going to get people who are going to run down a path to say, this is what's happening. And they're all sort of, you know, the fiscal dominance type arguments, you know. For, For those people not familiar, what is fiscal dominance? Fiscal dominance is when the Fed that's presumed to be independent, that changes the price of money to maximize the economy's employment and inflation functions. Fiscal dominance is when they, the Treasury tells the Federal Reserve, you can't raise rates. We can't afford it. You can't raise rates. You have to do what we want you to do. It's better for the country, not what you think you should do. You're going to hear these things pop up more and more, particularly if Inflation jumps a little bit. It doesn't have to jump a lot. And because here we are three months at a clip, you know, three months ago, nobody's forecasting what the next three months were going to be like. In September and October, we were going to 5% in yields as everybody was certain that was, you know, inflation was screaming, that everything was strong. Suddenly, here we are just over a month and a half later, and we're at 4%. And now everyone wants to go the other way completely. And so the turnabout is really quick. 
the turnabout in an election year is going to get a lot of eyeballs and uh, accusations. And frankly, there's some meat on the accusations, in my opinion. And so there's some meat on all these types of things that are going to come out, which is why you're going to hear them. And and part of the problem for the Fed is they have done such a poor job of forecasting that for them to be in this situation right now and now being embracing easing at this point, if they started to ease in June, but now, I mean, they did, they just validated that March is in play. We have an ease priced into April, another in May. And there it was all sort of like, yeah, well, yeah. No pushback at all. It's markets are clearly surprised to rally 30 bips in two year notes. That wasn't expected, but here you have it. And when you get into the guts of the Fed, there wasn't any pushback in there. So we'll see. I, I have to ask you a dumb question on this, which is, you know, I understand the implications of what you're saying. You know, the Biden administration, Biden himself and Secretary Yellen were both engaged in some good old-fashioned Fed arm twisting ahead of the meeting today. We all know what that's about. But if the Fed were to actually do what the Biden administration might like, which is to begin cutting rates in, say, March, wouldn't they run the risk also of seeing inflation reemerge right around the time of the election? And wouldn't that be bad for the Biden administration if that happened? Possibly, but it takes a little bit of time for the eases to work their way into the system. So they can't wait till September to have the economy stimulated on the back of easier money to benefit them by election time. So they needed it early. And I believe that's the urgency that we're witnessing. And so right now, if they ease now, given what's going on in the House of Representatives, it's unlikely they're going to get stimulus passed through any big fiscal spending this year. And for that reason, where's the stimulus going to come from? On top of that, the narrative that has haunted the Democrats has been that all their spending caused inflation. Inflation has hurt the economy and the consumer. The Fed had to raise rates dramatically to try to fight inflation. What better narrative to say inflation is coming down so fast that the Fed is even easing as proof? That is the narrative that you're going to be hearing from a political standpoint. And hell, if it benefited me, I'd be saying it. So they will be saying it. And that type of argument, believed or not, that's where the guts of it is. And that argument needs to play out during the primary season over the summer. You can't start that argument in September, October, and hope that on November, whatever, early November, that it's really had traction. So you think Fed cuts will, and it was probably, in in your view, at least given where the data is today, confirmed, what economic data is coming up that could either increase the probability of those March or April Fed cuts or decrease it based upon how they come in? We're going to get a PCE at the end of this month that's going to be very weak. It's like near zero. and People will embrace that PC and run with it and tell everyone this is proof. This is going to validate their judgment. And so that PCE is month over month. It's supposed to be like a 0.1. And why are you so confident it's going to be weak? The inputs of it, they're already been revealed for most of it. A lot of it comes through CPI. Then a lot of it comes through the PPI that came out today. And so they take inputs from that, then they make projections and they might be off by a little bit. They're 
typically pretty close on PCE. And so <laughs> it's known in advance. Pretty and well so telegraphed. That, yeah. With that coming out, it's not like it's been leaked. It's just taking all the puzzle pieces and inputs and putting them together. And then you, you have a pretty good idea. Okay. Well, listen, before I let you go, I have taken note of the fact that a couple of times in the morning meeting, you have been speaking about the recent treasury auctions. And I think it would be very interesting for our listeners if you could first just explain briefly the process and why what is occurring in the last few auctions is very, very notable from your vantage point. Yeah, there's a, a pattern that's emerged and it's different than what I've experienced in my career or what we've seen in the recent past. But as of the November 10-year auction, the market traded down about 11 basis points after that auction in the next 24 hours. Okay, that's a good size move, but it's nothing that should really send off flares. But the next day at the 30-year auction, we had a five basis point tail. Five basis point tail is very big tail because the dealers are all under pressure to have very competitive bids. And a competitive bid is considered to be a one-bit tail or two-bit tail. A five-bit tail, it's like- Off of the price that it cleared at, you mean? Yeah. So if the market's trading, say, at 4%, and then just before one o'clock, and then they're trying to sell an auction of all these new bonds, and the average price is 405, that's a five basis point tail. So the treasury wants those tails- that market to be very close to where it's actually trading in the marketplace. And virtually, you know, 99 odd percent of the time it is when stuff tails by more or stop short, where instead of coming at 4% in the auction, it comes at 399, where if it tails or stops short, then people make conclusions about the general level of demand in the marketplace that's being exhibited via this auction process. What happened after that five basis point tail was the next, and this is just for coupons, once we got to the end of November for two-year notes, five-year notes, seven-year notes, and then just a week ago, threes, tens, and thirties, after every auction, the market rallied a lot and it rallied instantaneously and it rallied aggressively and it was People who could have bought every, and yet they there were tails on four of the six of them, pretty good sized tails too. And yet, so somebody could have bought, say, a billion five year notes at the auction or a billion 10 year notes at the auction. And instead, the market's one and a half basis points cheaper at one minute after one o'clock when you get the results. And instead of buying it, the auction, they jam the prices higher like by eight basis points over the next 15, 30 minutes. Who is that urgent that they have to jam the prices so much higher after the auction? I don't know. I don't want to speculate as to who. There could be many people who are doing it. But why are they doing it? What's the motivation? Whose fiduciary responsibility are they satisfying? Certainly not their own, that they could have bought in the auction, but instead they decided to pay a much higher price two minutes afterwards. And so why is this pattern repeating? And I think it's because of the the bad tenure auction and then the tail on the bond. There's an invisible hand at work that does not want the narrative to get in there 
that when the Treasury comes to market, the demand for their bonds is not great. If somebody asked you to write a Tom Clancy-esque book, a novel called Auction, what would the most likely storyline be for why this is happening? In your book of fiction, but just to sort of play it out. Sure, because nothing in the universe gets in the way of the United States funding its government. And if the narrative becomes entrenched within the investor base that the Treasury is having difficulty selling their bonds, and it's witnessed by large tails and a market trading off afterwards to higher rates, so whoever bought it in the auction lost money, that's a bad thing for it to get entrenched. And given the monstrous amounts of supply that the Treasury is actually having to sell right now, that narrative is already in all investors' heads. Could this be? Could it be that we're going to have to have a higher term premium, they say? What it really means is people want to demand a higher yield in order to buy treasuries. That is not the answer that the government wants, particularly when they're having trouble. They have to pay so much money in annual interest payments based on the amount of supply that they have that they don't want rates going higher, thereby increasing their annual interest payments over time. We can all disagree or act like we don't really understand why this would be happening. But at the same time, you can't say it's not happening. It's happening. And even then, after each one of these auctions that rallied, nobody sees any flow. Nobody. Just just let me make sure that I can dumb this down. So in this financial market spy novel, We have a dynamic where the U.S. government wants to ensure that people who bid on its bonds make money so that as the huge amount of refunding that's coming up plays out, those bidders can have some measure of certainty or at least a belief that there's a shot that they could be rewarded for stepping up to the plate. They don't want to ensure that their investors make money. They want to ensure that investors don't believe you'll lose money if you buy. And so it's a big difference, right? So if you're willing to buy something that yields 5% or 4%, then you're saying, okay, that's a return that I think is valuable at this point. But if every time you buy something at 4% and three days later, it's 420, you're like, geez, why did I buy it? Right. It tailed by a lot and it traded poorly afterwards. So To have an invisible hand suddenly demand so many bonds 10 seconds after they could have bought them cheaper again and again and again, it is a little weird. And yet, other than watching what's actually happened, I don't have breadcrumbs to follow to tell you who, why, what the specific motivation is. So there's a lot of speculation in what I'm imagining, but there's no speculation in what's actually happening that I'm reporting. And what's actually happening that I'm talking about leads to speculation. Understood. Anything else you would like to touch on before I let you go? You know, the the only other thing that I just wanted to touch on quickly before we left was the housing market. Mortgage applications have gone up six weeks in a row. Your average mortgage rate in the country has gone from approximately just below 8% to approximately just above 7% in the matter of two months. We have had what has been a frozen housing market for 
very long time, year, year and a half, two years, where the turnover was less and less. And it's because you had the most unaffordable homes of all time, based on all the metrics. Nobody wants their house price to go down. But by the mortgage rates coming down, the affordability is improving without housing prices changing. So as that affordability improves, if it continues, we will start to unlock frozen wealth, wealth that was paralyzed because nobody would buy it and sellers wouldn't sell it because they had a two and a half percent mortgage. So there are plenty of sellers who thought, I'd like to sell, but I'm not getting out now. But now that affordability has come down, buyers who were waiting, pent up buying, pent up demand may sit there and say, you know what, at this level, I can afford it and I want my home. And so they'll go in and pay the price without house prices coming down. And that dynamic will free up a lot of wealth because when home prices went up by 50% or whatever it was, wherever you are in America, but if it went up by 50%, but you had no buyer, once the price got there for you to get out, you have a on paper gain, but you don't have a real gain. If affordability is improving dramatically because the cost of a mortgage is coming down, well, now that paper gain can become a realized gain. And now that will inject a lot of wealth into the nation that has been dormant. And you don't think lower mortgage rates will lead to house prices going up right away? Well, it might. It certainly would help it. But since they were already at their most unaffordable, my bet is it just allows people who would hope to sell at that price without lowering it, it will help to clear out those sellers and the buyers who have been pent up waiting because now they can afford it. And this may happen in theory with approximately home prices not changing value. Gotcha. Okay. In January, when we have you back, in addition to checking back with you on the auctions and everything going on with the Fed, I will make sure to ask you about housing again as well, because that was a fascinating comment and I really appreciate it. And I hope you have a great holiday, Lindy. Thank you so much for this. I I hope Powell still has his prom crown on by the time (laughs) we speak next. All righty. Thank you. All right. So This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without any notice. Information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice, and should not be viewed as recommendation to purchase or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investments. Any health-related information shared on the podcast is not intended as medical advice for use in self-diagnosis or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare professional before acting upon any health-related information on the podcast. Please also review related show notes for this podcast and visit us at www.gwise.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.